Is baby brain real? Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashpitz, and my mission is to help you realize your potential and capabilities through conversations and deep insights so you can make your prior best your new baseline. Dr. Sarah Mackay joins the podcast this week, and Dr. Sarah is an Oxford University-educated neuroscientist, author, speaker, and director of Think Brain Suite of online training programs. Sarah now resides in Sydney with her husband and two boys. And in this conversation, we talk about motherhood, pregnancy, hormones, and masculinity. I'm really, really grateful that Dr. Sarah was able to come on and have this conversation with me. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you do as well. And in other news, this conversation is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So go ahead and click the link in the show notes, scroll through all of their products, and find which ones might fit you and your wellness needs. Then once you get to check out, use code EVERYBODY for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 212 of Something for Everybody. Hello, my friend, and welcome to Something for Everybody. My name is Aaron Mashpitz. Dr. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I have a very important question to ask you before we really get into the meat and bones of it all, and that is, how are you doing? Like, actually, how are you doing, really? That is like a really nice way to start a podcast. Actually, right now, I'm doing really well. Um, I've had a good year. I'm also... You know, like I'm like an internal optimist and, and quite upbeat. <laughs> My kind of baseline level mood is is pretty high. And, um, you know, right now everything in my life is balanced and stable and the only, perhaps the only downside is we, we, we had to put the family dog to sleep about six weeks ago and so I go through little phases of missing him. But we've got another puppy coming along in January to replace him so if I had to think of one little kind of sort of speck on my overall you know upbeat positive vibe it would just be you know, missing 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 my boy missing my dog but but generally you know life is life is good I have a very wonderful happy life and I'm, I'm very very fortunate and I just like to sort of roll around and roll around in the good emotions when I've got them yeah I'm with that. Uh, recently, I've been answering that question, um, never had it so good. And uh, yeah. it's sort of interesting, right? Because some people answer that question like, living the dream. And you know, they're like, those people are not actually living the dream. I don't know if that's a phrase where you're from, but in America, people yeah, yeah, say it yeah, all yeah. the time. I don't know. I mean, you know, like, who's dream, right? I don't know whether I ever dreamed. I don't, I don't think forward too much. I, I, don't, I don't think I overthink too much. I just kind of get on with what I'm doing every day. Um, but I, I would say right now I'm very content hmm. and life is not always like that. Um, you know, there's these sayings as well, you're only as, as happy as your unhappiest child. And right now my teenage sons, fingers crossed, are, are great. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say living the dream, but I'm pretty content. I wouldn't change much. Yeah. Yeah. You said you're, um, you're having a good year. Do you, mm. 
do you uh, do you define what that is at the beginning of the year? How do you how do you feel or know that it's good or what is that marker for you? It's probably it's not anything I define in advance. Um, I usually just sort of take what what kind of comes my way. I suppose I'm thinking about the year looking back now because in the last couple of days I've just wrapped up, you know, a couple of really big projects that I've been working on. Pretty much my work year is done. And here in Australia, the school year, the kind of the work year goes like the calendar year, sort of January to December. And I and I happen to have wrapped everything up at the end of November. I've got a couple of days work left to go, a conference to attend and speak at, a, a lecture to give tomorrow. And then I'm kind of done. And the 1st of December is the first day of summer in the Southern Hemisphere, or as we have it in Australia and New Zealand, first day of summer, we always think is the 1st of December. It's one of my boy's birthdays. It's kind of the start of party season. So I just feel like it's I'm right at that point where I'm looking back on a year of work and going, yeah, that was good. And now I can sort of dial down and get ready for the summer holidays and, you know, all of the festivities of Christmas, New Year, et cetera. Beautiful. I caught you at a great time then, it seems like. You eh? did. You did. <laughs> yeah. Um, you really did. Tell me, tell me about the projects that you finished up and then we'll get into some other stuff. Oh, yeah, for sure. So thanks for asking that. I teach a couple of, well, I've got sort of three main online neuroscience programs that I teach, the professional development training programs and applied neuroscience. And the kind of, I suppose, the, 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 the OG of them is the Neuroscience Academy, which is sort of a, a, an introduction to, to neuroscience, applied neuroscience and brain health. And I teach that as CPD or continuing professional development to like therapists. I've had doctors come through, social workers, lots and lots of coaches, whether they be leadership, life coaches, business coaches, um, allied health, anyone really who is interested in ongoing professional development within and, and sort of taking neuroscience into the work that they do. And I've been teaching that since 2015 and every two or three years I update all of the content and I just went through the biggest update of the content that I've done since I launched the program in 2015 and it took it takes about three or four months to do that so that's research <laughs> write the the lectures create the slides that can be engaging and interesting and taught online mm. writing the scripts <laughs> Um, recording, updating all of the references and resources. So it's quite, it's a, it's a really chunky project. And I finished that and I'm like, I'm super proud because it's, I suppose it's the main kind of core of content that I teach my students. And I really want them to come away feeling that it's been useful. It wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't too light on. They've learned something. They've been able to use what I've taught them. Um, and I've been teaching online for enough years now that I kind of know how to create an, an online learning experience for adults. I think I've got that part going quite well, but getting people to engage with the content as well is really important because neuroscience is pretty complicated. Um, and I'm And I'm really... You know, I'm just like thrilled that that the big project is done of the update, and that I'm 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 proud. I'm really proud of what I've done with that. So big big tick for 2023. 
that'll that'll keep everyone going for the next couple of years that content <laughs> well hopefully amazing well congratulations on that that's uh that's super cool yeah 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 it's good it's nice to have it done um so yeah i'll make a hard hard left here uh hmm. in my great podcasting transition <laughs> um <laughs> to to talk about something that is um sort of very important to me and i i would imagine now very important to you since you're raising um two young boys two teenage boys not so young yeah. anymore um how are you thinking about masculinity and how are you thinking about teaching them healthy masculinity wow gosh that is a hard left turn having teenage sons is kind of wild so one of them turns 14 in a couple of days mm-hmm. he's kind of a young he's young 14 <laughs> got a 14 year old and a 15 year old the 15 year old's 15 going on 20 and the 14 year old's like 14 going on 12 or something they're quite close in age but but seem developmentally quite far apart um and watching them grow up has been kind of wild I am incredibly fortunate that I made a really damn good choice when I got married and I'm married to a really gorgeous an Irishman actually mm. we met when we were students and we've you know, had this. We've had a really great marriage. We just had a seventeenth wedding anniversary last or a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I think part of raising boys is raising boys in a family with my husband being who he is. And he's he's not he's not the alpha. He's an economist, <laughs> but he's smart and he's funny and he's warm and he's kind. And I'm so fortunate that I'm bringing boys up with him as an example of of masculinity um i think where we live and the community we live in sydney australia we live in the northern beaches of sydney and we don't have immediate family around us because i grew up in new zealand and my husband's irish my dad lives in australia but he lives near byron bay so we haven't got immediate family around so we've really had to kind of lean into that the community of people around us where the boys went through primary school sports communities the high school they're in, and we've been incredibly fortunate as well that they've been exposed to and they've kind of grown up with families with really good positive male role models as well. So that's um, something that we've really nurtured and I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased with, and especially the high school they're in now. A lot of high school, secondary school education in Australia is single sex and they're in a co-ed high school Um and it's it's unusual because the kids love that school. The kids, they, they love the school that they're in. And there's some really great young male role models there as well. My boys are into surfing and a lot of the, the teachers are young males who surf and they'll often see them at the weekend. So they're surrounded by a community of really good men too. Um, so I think raising boys in that environment for me has been incredibly important. I grew up with sisters. My mum had sisters. I grew up with a lot of girls and women. I went to an all-girls Catholic school in New Zealand. Um, so I didn't really grow up with with males. I had lots of male friends. Um, but I never really kind of had male puberty live streamed <laughs> and didn't get to experience it in the same way I am now. Um, and it's and it's kind of wild, but I try what I do try very hard is take what I've learned, especially from thinking about the neuroscience of childhood development, adolescent development, 
the neurobiology of sex, the neurobiology of gender, having written books on these topics. I try and remind myself to take a bit of a, I sort of talk about it as like a David Attenborough approach, whereas I just kind of stand back and kind of watch a lot of what goes on um, and try not to insert myself into their experience of of adolescence because it's a very different thing growing up, being a teenage boy. You would have more knowledge of that than, than what I have. Um, and so far from what I'm observing, cause it's not about me, their, their, their teenagehood, their, you know, wildhood, they're, they're kind of leaving the family nest where mum's kind of at the center. Well, I still try and keep the nest, the nest lined and warm and full of food. It needs a lot of food in it. The nest. <laughs> um, <laughs> just sort of watching them kind of emerge out into that and kind of learn to be boys and men or teenage boys in this world um, is, is kind of fascinating. Luckily so far, especially the older one who's kind of out and about more, hasn't made too many dumb decisions, which I think is a really good thing. You kind of feel like, you know, a lot of the work that you did when they were young is paying off. Mostly I just try and stand back and most of the behaviours that I'm observing I try and remind myself these are completely developmentally normal. So there's there's one example I, I, I sometimes give of my oldest son um, catches the school bus from home and as, and as he's got older and he's kind of, he's often not high, it's kind of, it's kind of like having a flatmate or a housemate. He's got a curfew mm. from 10.30 at night, but um, a lot of the rest of the time he's kind of out and about with his mates. And But I've said no matter what, darling, does not matter when, or for what reason, if you call me and you need me to pick you up in the car, I will. No questions asked. So what does he do? He's on the school bus on the way home. The bus stops probably less than a kilometre away from the house and he rings me up on the bus and he's like, Mum, I'm so tired. <laughs> Can you come and pick me up? And I'm like, well, I better go and pick him up, right, because I promised. I said no matter, no questions asked. So I go pick him up, bring him home. He disappears upstairs. He comes back downstairs, goes out into the garage, got a surfboard under his arm, gets on his bike. We live quite close to the beach. And he's like, oh, I'm going off for a surf with my mates. And I'm like, oh, you're not like really tired? And he's like, nah. And I said, do you want me to drive you to the beach? Because you're really tired. And he's like, no, I'm fine, mum. And off he goes. And I think what neuroscience has taught me is how completely developmentally normal and healthy that response is because what gives you energy is motivation and what gives young people motivation is um you know that kind of drive to belong and be a member of a tribe he's not really thinking about mum driving him here there or everywhere he's really quite focused on coming home and then going back out for a surf with his mates and that's developmentally normal and healthy and like great that's what he should be doing and instead of me kind of inserting myself into that and say, well, it was very selfish of you before and then you come home and you go straight out. I just kind of stand back and watch. And so long as he's safe <laughs> and he's not making stupid decisions because teenage boys can, so can teenage girls, um, I, just kind of, I just kind of watch and watch the things they do. And <laughs> often, remind, actually I said to my youngest son yesterday when he was, I can't remember what he was stomping around the house for early in the morning and I said, gosh, your behaviour is so developmentally normal. They hate it when I say that. <laughs> but for me, it's almost a reassurance. The way that they are typically is, is you know, completely healthy <laughs> and as it should be. So I just try to provide the warm, nurturing nest for them to fall back into when they need that. 
um, remind the younger one not to spend too much time on screens. Mm. <clears throat> we do quite a bit of sport together as a family. We we sail, which sounds, you know, very sort of privileged, sort of wealthy person sport, whatever. My husband grew up sailing in Ireland. Sydney, everyone, you know, sailing's a big thing. And <clears throat> we often spend, you know, all day Saturday down at, you know, in the water, one of the kids will be sailing. The other one might be, the older one's a sailing coach. Me and my husband might be running the sailing races. And I think you're out in the water in Sydney Harbour in a boat, right? You've got a whole lot. That's that's pretty, you've got a lot of sort of freedom there. Um, and I think kind of raising boys in an environment where they are doing that in a community mm-hmm. is, is is hopefully... <laughs> presenting the right kind of masculinity to them. Yeah, I mean, you you nailed a few really important points that I think a lot of uh, our young boys here in America are missing. One being strong, strong male role models to look up to. Mm. They're only finding that on social media. And now if yeah. you get lucky, you can stumble upon a male role model on social media who's actually uplifting and talks about you know, kindness and respect and love and hope also being tough and things like that. Or you can stumble on the other side of the coin. Um, so we need, we need a more emphasis on yes, strong male role models. Young boys don't really care what you have to say. They care what you do. They care what you do. They care what you do. And that's very important. And then the community aspect, that's why sports in any, in any frame of sports, whatever that is, is super yeah. important. And then so, like you mentioned, yeah. you doing with your boys is, is they have some freedom about them. But yeah. that's that's why sports are so good, right? Because sports have distinct rules, but yeah. inside the rules, there's freedom. Yeah. So Me there's and constraints the- and then there's there's freedom. Like that's life. Yeah. You're the so mom. It's funny what you, you say. The, you know? One of my husband's parenting philosophy, or my husband called it this years ago, he calls it freedom in a framework. <laughs> and we've always sort of thought, well, what's the what's the kind of the framework? And and it's kind of broadly geographical as well. Particularly, I keep looking out the window because we've grown up in this suburb and there's a lot of bushland around us. And, um, you know, the, they kind of grew up riding their mountain bikes in the bush and riding around the streets and as they've got older, we'll be like, well, you know, the, the boundaries of the suburb or where they could kind of go grew a bit. But within that, like if you're in the suburb and you're with these these friends, like go for it. And they're in the bush building bike jumps and I don't know what else they're roaming around <laughs> doing with sticks and rocks and things in the bush, um, which sounds kind of slightly wild. As they've got older, we've just, we've kind of, especially my older one who's he's kind of a boy of a tribe and a bit of an adrenaline junkie who's kind of got lately into spear fishing. I don't know whether they do that in, in the US where you kind of, you know, dive under the water and spear fish with a, mm-hmm. with a spear um, with his mates. And it's and then they take the fish home and then they cook them up and they'll make like a fish curry or something. And it's quite primal. Um, you know, they can spend three or four hours surfing and then do some sparing. And, you know, there's their kind of day spent in the water. Now, as a mum, it's kind of hard to stay completely calm because <laughs> you know they could stab each other they could drown or a shark could come you know there's a lot of what things that could go wrong but we've given them a pretty loose well we've given them a framework right and there's a lot of freedom within that and that especially I think for teenage boys the ability to kind of explore and and you know hunting animals I suppose is 
is so primal um and it and it just kind of feeds that that need for them to do that and so we've kind of allowed them to do that even though sometimes I kind of have to breathe through the day <laughs> um well while they're out there doing it, I think it's just so important that they've got that that physical freedom and the challenges to 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 go and do those things um and hopefully then they make the choices to do that and not the other sort of dumb stuff that they could do for thrills right I mean that's ex exactly why men's groups where it's supposed to you know better your emotional understanding and your mental health are all like outdoors doing physical stuff then you create these these bonds with these other men and then you're sitting at a fire and you're talking about how you haven't had intimacy with your wife for three years and no you haven't told anyone that and you're like finally getting this thing off your chest because you did these these physical acts with your friends now i'm obviously not saying that's what your teenage sons are talking about but he's still building <laughs> you know he's still building strong bonds so maybe when something happens to him you know he yeah you know whatever it is whatever teenage boys happen like he has someone to go to outside of you he's like okay buddy or mate i've been dealing with this like can we yeah. talk about it while we're we're surfing or we're just riding the waves like there's so much more that can happen outside of this this physicality that has to be not has to be usually that's the the catalyst for for men because now we can use our bodies we can feel like we're we're useful that's really what we want to feel like that we're we're useful um yeah, yeah, and then yeah. we have more of ability yeah. to open up and share and talk about things and build yeah. bonds and and like you're talking how about the sense of belonging which is which is so important which yeah, is so important yeah. I really like that idea of feeling useful and I think that's the thing. If you have you feel like you've got whether the right word is like kind of agency or autonomy or trust in your body because you've grown up learning how to use your body kind of in, in, in nature and in the outdoors and you know, my boys were you know, that's just how we've brought them up from when they could before they could walk we were camping. Um, so they've always grown, they've grown up in the outdoors and I would trust them now more in big, I wouldn't go in the big surf, but they, they would if it was a big surf day. And I think giving them, giving them the opportunity to, to, to use their bodies and to build trust in their bodies, that their bodies are strong and capable and to know the environment in which they live and that they feel like they, they have not agency over the environment, but they have, have they've, they've kind of grown their bodies up in this world. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's that, that thing of do they feel useful or at least they feel confident in that space. And I think perhaps a lot of, and I don't know, I can't comment on other teenage boys apart from the ones that I know have all kind of grown up the same way. Perhaps if you don't feel that same sort of physical strength and like there's testosterone like I can you can smell it in the air in our house right <laughs> I can see it and I can feel it and I see them like you know the, the the lights will be it'll be night and the lights will be on and they'll be flexing in the like the mirror I'm um, the mirror and the like the windows you know walking around with just their board shorts and they're flexing and and the, the, the older ones stopped doing this but the younger ones started doing this and both my boys kind of hit puberty early but not sort of normal but early-ish so my 15 year old's six foot four my 13 year old's over six foot so they're kind of big um tall strong boys um which I think is kind of it's kind of helpful if you're a guy and you're like an early 
you hit puberty kind of on the early side and the late side because you kind of rise up in social stature or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's definitely a protective mechanism in there. But I see the younger one, he kind of walks because he's now taken over me. And I'm tall. I'm like 5'10". And he'll walk up and he'll like look down at me and he's sort of strutting his stuff. And, and, and I can see that sort of biological urge to prove how big and strong they are. And they're so proud of that. And, and to, so you've got to like give them an environment in which that they can use that new body and use that new friend strength. Because um, if, if they're not using their bodies, then they're sort of stuck in their heads and that's mm -hmm. a really dangerous place to be. Yeah. Yeah, I can picture the exact moment uh, in my life where that all like sort of meshed for me when I saw physical changes in my body. The physical changes in my body made me feel more confident. I all of a sudden got good at the sport I was playing. It just sort of skyrockets. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so it, it's yeah. cool. So yeah, that's yeah, really yeah. And awesome. Giving, giving a, a positive feedback loop to that as I, you know, like a, 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 a masculinity being modeled by, by good men, mm -hmm. I think is so important for them because I could so easily see how that, that you just see this kind of, this kind of, uh, I don't know, animalistic kind of uh, in them. Girls don't have that. I didn't have that. I never experienced that, but I can see it. I can feel it. I'm their mother. I can feel it in my body coming from them. If that's not given the right place to be expressed, um, I could just, I could see how easily it would just go. They could head down the wrong path so easily, so easily. I can, I feel it in my body. Um, and I, and I think that's a real mother kind of sense, you know, you just know the second you see them, you know what they think and feel. Um, so, you know, but you've got to kind of put the groundwork in as well. Like we've been putting the groundwork in for a lot of years, me and my husband and like so much of the credit of, of this has to go to my husband. Um, yeah, he's a good man. Yeah, well, cheers to him and cheers to you guys. Mm. So my my parents did the same and my mom is a fucking or is currently still a rock star. So cheers oh, to her. I team. can't wait until the boys say that about me. <laughs> At yeah. the moment I'm still kind of cringe, but that's normal. That's mm -hmm. cool. I'm, I'm happy to wait. <laughs> oh, they will. And then they'll express their love for you uh, more than they can imagine because then mm. uh, us boys feel that for a mom. We're like, wow, she yeah. did so much for me. I love her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, that's so that's nice crazy. to hear. That's but so nice. um, speaking of uh, you know, testosterone and and hormones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you do a lot of work with that, and you've researched a lot of that. Um, why why should we care about hormones? Why is that important? I think we should care about hormones, but sometimes I feel like we care a little too much about hormones mm. as well. So when I went into writing my first book, it's the women's. You can see the girls back there, the women's brain book. Um. It's got different titles in different parts of the world. You know, I wanted to to take a look at sort of, you know, your the the, the I don't, and the female brain, I suppose, for want of a better word, womb a sh sort of a womb to tomb look like. How how is our neurobiology shaped by our physical experiences of of being a woman and being a woman in the world? you know, what happens to our brains during puberty, during pregnancy, menopause, old age, why are girls and women more vulnerable to anxiety and depression than boys and men? Boys and men experience that, but if you kind of had to take a look at numbers, you know, there would be more girls and women in that sort of space. Why are women more vulnerable to Alzheimer's disease later in age? 
And so I wanted to kind of explore a lot of these questions about, I suppose, female life transitions um, through the lens of neurobiology. And I went into, so I went into this as a neuroscientist, but not with a very firm understanding of neuroendocrinology, so kind of the, the, the neuroscience of our hormones. And I very much went into the book thinking, well, this is going to be, I'm going to learn a whole lot about hormones, particularly estrogen and progesterone, sort of female sex hormones released from the ovaries. Um, but what was really interesting was at every stage, whether I looked at puberty, whether I looked at pregnancy, whether I looked at menopause or other experiences, hormones were only kind of like one voice in the crowd in terms of determining an outcome or, or, an, or an experience. So puberty, so we've just been talking about kind of like male-female puberty and this idea, you know, well, obviously the, the testosterone in the boys turns them into men and, you know, estrogen, you know, in the girl, it's like when your gonads kind of turn on um, with puberty, then that kind of starts to, to shape and sculpt your body, but your brain also goes through puberty too. And I kind of thought, well, you know, as as is it the hormones of puberty that will make girls more vulnerable to depression as teenagers than boys? Not to say boys are not, but on average, girls are more, more vulnerable. But what was interesting was when I, I looked, there was this one particular longitudinal study done here in Australia looking at the development of sort of social emotional problems around puberty. And if you looked at girls who developed, who, who entered puberty much earlier than their friendship group, they were far more vulnerable to develop social and emotional problems or mood disorders versus girls who went through puberty at the same age as their peer group. And boys were kind of, you know, slightly early, boys who went through puberty slightly earlier than their friendship group were sort of slightly protected versus those, you know, there's always that little guy in everyone's class and he's 16 and he still hasn't grown. Those boys are far more vulnerable. And so you've kind of got pubertal hormones kicking off in these kids at these different ages, but the stronger determinants of, you know, their social and emotional outcomes was the kind of the context those kids were in. Hey, my body's changing. What's happening with my friends' bodies, my friends' perceptions of me, my perceptions of them. Context was a stronger determinant of an outcome than simply a hormone. Mm. So it's always kind of like hormones are important, but in context. We see the same if we think about um, PMS in women as another kind of kind of went into looking at that in my book thinking, well, I'm really interested in the role of female hormones and mood. I personally have always been pretty mood stable. <laughs> I've never really kind of shown any monthly fluctuations and I've just kind of so I've always been pretty stable. So I did kind of just, I did kind of go in going, well, how many women suffer from PMS? This must be a thing, right? And I started looking at all of these studies and I came across a, a global meta-analysis looking at rates of PMS around the world. So women putting their hands up and saying, yep, I suffer from PMS. Um, and it varied like dramatically by country. Some countries, around 10% of women were saying, yeah, I have PMS, so say France. Spain, it was around 20 to 30%. You would go into some Middle Eastern countries, it could get up to as high as 90%. So that's kind of wild, like 10% to 90% with lots of different countries in between. It's, and I was like, well, if this is a hormonal thing, why is it varying so much depending on social, cultural context? Um, 
And we see that a lot. We see hormones are kind of one voice in a crowd, but often what shapes an experience is not just the hormone, it's the, the content, the context a person is experiencing, you know, this perhaps hormonal shift or neurological shift or life transition in. So it so has yeah, a lot to do useful with... useful and important, but I think we can focus on them so much we forget about the other kind of, you know, taking a biopsychosocial approach, stick the brain in the middle, you've got the biological influences of your body, you've got the, the social, cultural, the world kind of making its way into your senses, you've got streams of information coming in, and now where's my, my phone with me? You know, you've got your, thank goodness I haven't got my phone with me, you've got, your, you've got the, the, every calamity and war and disaster and opinion of every single human on the planet, like streaming in, it's like it's like right in front of your face. Mm. <laughs> you know, wars used to be on the other side of the world. Now we're expected to be live streaming them and having a firm opinion on them. Um, and then we've got you know our psychology. You know, this kind of top-down expectations, memories, experiences, meaning making. And I think when we think, well, hormones are important, we're forgetting about all of the other data that's coming into our brain that we're making meaning of. And that's what that's what my research in my book showed me. Hormones, that that they they play a role, but they're not the loudest voice in the crowd all the time. Yeah, and, and I I think they they can't be like this this handicap for the reason like maybe why like my hormones are this so I, I, this is why I'm this way you know instead yeah, of yeah we we default you know, looking yeah, at we, uh, we blame them yeah mm -hmm. I mean we see that particularly. Girls and women almost have been sort of fed this story, um, and I haven't got daughters, so I would have. You can be sure I would have not been saying this if I did. Um, you know, if you've got a female body and brain, and you add female hormones in, it doesn't matter whether it's puberty and they're kind of kicking off your menstrual cycle, where they're fluctuating every month. You're on the pill; they're kind of high but stable. Through pregnancy, they're sky high you know menopause they sort of start to fluctuate again and then and then kind of whittle away it doesn't really kind of matter whether they're going up or down they're high or low we're blaming them when things go wrong and it's almost as if we've been taught that the combination of a female body and brain and hormones automatically equals emotional instability and cognitive dysfunction and decline it is inevitable and that's simply not the case that's not thank goodness that's not what neuroscience is showing us um, this, I tried to unpack these ideas in my second book on baby brain. Um, right. you know, this, the, 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 context and the expectations and the meaning we're making of all of these hormones, yeah, that, that, they're, they're playing a role. Um, but the, the kind of the volume will be different in every person. And then almost the meaning that you're making of that signal is going to be different in every person too. And, and we just have this tendency, especially for women, you never hear men um, you know, the men men love their tea, right? <laughs> you like you love a bit of testosterone and you worry if it drops, whereas women are kind of taught that it's that that'd be blamed when things go wrong. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's like well, I mean, at least I can relate it to nowadays. If masculinity is always toxic, then I might as well just not try. I might not not do anything and I'll just I won't try to be my best and I'll just, uh, that's my blame. And oh. the same on the woman's side, if, if I'm always emotionally unstable as a woman, I might not even 
try and to do anything else when obviously that's not true. Mm -hmm. I have emotionally stable women in my life. I've met them all the time. We all have emotions that fluctuate and things that bother us. But if that's my, if that's my handicap, if that's what I always fall to, then I don't have any agency or response to, to direct it in any sort of other way. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm throwing bricks on myself and, and I'm wondering why I can't stand up. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Oh gosh, you're speaking, you're speaking my language. Yeah, ab- absolutely. It's it, we just take this deficit. I think testosterone in men has a different kind of cultural narrative at the moment than hormones do in women. But 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 in women, it's they're often associated with deficits, not strengths. And my second book, Baby Brain, really was talking about well, hey, the hormones are driving a large degree of the neural architecture changes that are taking place during pregnancy, and they're evolutionary adaptive changes to enable the kind of the brain to become a maternal brain to sort of read baby's social cues once they're born and to kind of almost focus on the baby forgetting about everything else and that's an adaptive benefit I might not feel like it because babies are hard work right like they cry but you just kind of can't keep your hands off them either you just kind of want to eat them all up they're so gorgeous um and and I, I spent a lot of time trying to explain that these are positive beneficial changes um that were driven by 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 pregnancy hormones. Um but yeah, we, we focus on the deficits in female hormone narratives, not the not the strengths. And now we've kind of got there's a whole new kind of story emerging around around menopause and um hormone therapy, which is kind of weird because we've got this really negative narrative around the oral contraceptive pill and they're both like hormones that you're supplementing, right? <laughs> like mm. you can actually take the same medication for both. So, you know, we're, we're making a lot of meaning um, there that's not necessarily <laughs> evidence-based, but that's just my little pet peeve. Yeah. When I was thinking about baby brain, like mm. I, I, I just couldn't understand why we would assume that mothers would get like basically stupider during pregnancy. Like it didn't, I don't understand that because all the mothers that I know who have babies are exceptional human beings. So why would evolution or mother nature herself be like, yeah, you'll get dumber even though you have to care for someone that is like literally can't do anything themselves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not what mother nature has, has, has done. I think, what I've come to understand writing the book, taking and you know, I I, I dived right down deep into the cognitive testing that's been done on women who say, "I oh, hey, I've got baby brain," whether that be during pregnancy, at different stages of pregnancy, and early motherhood, and sort of in some around four out of five women will say, "Hey, I have baby brain." Again, I was one of the I was the one of I'm just kind of, I seem like kind of impervious, right? Um, <laughs> I I didn't experience it, but I didn't know it was a thing either. And I think that's mm. quite that was kind of for me quite talent. I didn't know I was meant to experience baby brain. And I didn't experience baby brain. And I specifically know I did not because I moved out of academia into working sort of in industry and science and health communications when I was around seven or eight weeks pregnant with my oldest son. So I clearly remember taking a huge career shift at that time. Um, and really loving the challenge, I, I, I thrived 
um, despite despite growing a child inside my inside me. Um, so the thing is, if we bring these four out of bring all women into the research lab and say, "Hey, let's do cognitive testing on you," we're just not picking up cognitive decline, which isn't a really good thing. So I, I say this to women, they go, well, that, that's not what I experienced. And said, it's a good thing we're not detecting cognitive decline because that's what we detect in people who are starting to show the onset of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. We do not want cognitive decline. So what's going on? We do see in some women in the third trimester of pregnancy, like maybe they might score a point less mm. on average than you know than, than, than a standard kind of test of, of cognition. But only in some women sometimes in the third trimester. Not every study, many studies pick up nothing. And some studies have actually found enhanced cognition in that third trimester of pregnancy. In new mothers, we're not picking anything up. So there's a, there's quite a kind of a paradox between the objective experience or the objective measures in the research lab and then the subjective experience as a woman. And I'm not here to say it's all in your head. However, there has to be some reason for that paradox. And, and the people who have, the researchers have gone in and interrogated that have picked up on a kind of a few signals there. One is that we think overall well-being, like are you feeling socially supported? Are you feeling very, very stressed? Are you feeling well, you know, health-wise? How's your sleep? Like overall well-being is very closely related to rating baby brain as being good or bad. So women with low well-being overall things aren't you know they're really struggling with with pregnancy or early motherhood are much more likely to report that they have baby brain even if we say hey here are your cognitive tests so that's really interesting and so what we think is perhaps going on is women are using this word baby brain for some reason they've picked it up from kind of the world around them they've picked it up as a way of describing the experience of just generally not kind of coping because it's really hard work becoming a new mum, particularly for the first time, because you're having to, I mean, it's an enormously steep learning curve. Even if your brain has been kind of rewired by pregnancy to be primed to, to look after your baby, you've still got to learn. We just hope the learning curve isn't quite so steep because of the neural changes that have taken place. Um, but, but, but most of your attention is taken up with thinking about that baby, not thinking about all of the other things you used to do. And so, memory depends on attention and so if you're forgetting things it's not because of a cognitive neurological deficit it's just because you can't pay attention to everything and you shouldn't have to be paying attention to everything in fact other people should be picking up that slack for you and helping you out so it's almost as if baby brain is a word women are using to describe that just kind of experience of just simply not being able to do it all but they've internalized it to blame their brains well it's my neurology so oh, poor old me dumb old mum instead yeah. of it just being a because it's got the word brain in it it's a it's a description of an experience but it doesn't mean it is a neurological deficit and how how do we get the or how do new mothers get the support they need so they don't feel like this i mean i know it's not 100 percent possible because they're just like it's really hard regardless mm -hmm. if you have support or not um, yeah. but I mean, what, what's the advice there? Well, I don't think new mothers should be the ones having to get the support themselves that they've got enough on their plate. It's, you know, we, we, when mother nature didn't intend us to parent alone, we, mm. we, we are human mammals and we're allo parents, which means we share parenting care. Of course, mothers, you know, traditionally or 
you know, biologically are responsible for nourishing the baby, but they don't have to. There is, you know, you can use formula. I, I fed my boys, but I was lucky they were great feeders and it was easy for me. But um, I think it really comes down to the, you know, that sort of that social support, that structure that should be around women. And it's easy for me here in Australia talking to someone in the US because we have, you know, parental really, you know, great. They probably could be more generous, but pretty generous maternity leave, parental leave, you know, doesn't you don't have to it doesn't have to be the mother. We've got great parental leave policies. Um, you know, that's kind of part of part of life here. We have community health nurses that kind of come in every new mum into the community. They'll they'll come into your house and sort of meet you and establish you within like kind of a little social network of other mums in the area of the same age or other parents in the area of the same age. Um, you know, we've got, you know, the the government here in Australia as well is 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 talking about subsidizing even more and more and more childcare for particularly low income families mm-hmm. um, to kind of help support those people. But I also think mothers need to be supported if they want to stay at home too. There's still a bit of a social sort of stigma around that, I suppose. So it's really, I suppose, a, a social and then kind of a society and then a political uh, problem to solve as well. It shouldn't be up to each new mum to be crying out for help. Right. You'd hope that those systems would be in place. Of course, that's not the case for every woman who has a baby. Um, but, yeah, it shouldn't be up to the new mum to figure that out. Um, you'd hope that a lot of that infrastructure would be supplied to her without her having to be the one that reaches out. Yeah. And if it's not, that's where sort of this uh, this super mom term, you know, comes in, sort mm. of the opposite of baby brain where they feel like mm. they have to, no matter what, do everything all of the time. Yeah, and yeah, Even yeah. though you can't multitask, it's not real. Mothers almost get it done, <laughs> um, so that's also an interesting yeah. thing as well. And that just and that's you know that's just draining, and that leads to burnout. Burnout's almost in, inevitable when you're a new you're you're a new parent or a new mum without good strong social support. I mean, we we weren't we weren't meant to be parenting the way that we do. Um, I mean, I probably shouldn't have been parenting the way I was. We didn't have immediate family around us when my boys were little. Luckily, I had. Luckily, I, I chose not to go back to work. Um, I was we were in the financial position where I was fortunate enough not to have to go back to the workplace. I kind of built, you know, my business up on the side as the boys got older. I had a really good, strong community around me, but I purposefully went out and, you know, created that. Um, but it wasn't easy at all. It would have been it would have been a whole lot easier with aunts and grandmothers and grandparents around for support. So sometimes I was hanging in by my fingernails. Um, but yeah, my and luckily my boys were easy. They were straightforward. They were healthy. They fed. They slept. Um, but the shift in your perception of who you are as a as a as a parent is, gosh, that was a that was that was kind of wild as well. Did you uh, experience any like serious low points during your early motherhood days? Um, I never had depression at all, and I didn't really have anxiety. I had anger, <laughs> which mm. is a really confusing emotion to feel. And part of that is, is, is biological, particularly 
I mean, the mama bear response, lactational aggression, it's called when you when you are a breastfeeding mammal. Um, you know, your your hormones almost kind of make you aggressive to protect your young. Um, now, whether that was underlying that emotion that I had, or whether that was perhaps kind of a, a, a sort of a baseline emotion simmering away, perhaps primed by hormones. And then added on top of that, the frustration and the confusion of figuring out who I was as a new mum. The overriding emotion I felt at times was kind of around anger and frustration and never sadness, never despair, never fear, worry, anxiety. It was, it was, it was anger. And that is a really confusing emotion to navigate because mums shouldn't be angry. We're meant to be placid and warm and kind and, you know, loving no matter what. And so there's quite a lot of shame that comes with that. And it's only been as, you know, years on, you talk to that, talk, talk about that emotion with other women. And I think, gosh, even in the 15 years since I've been a mother, the conversations have become far more open. Um, we're, we're talking about anger and early motherhood is far more acceptable, but it's a, it's a shame-filled emotion because you should never feel that way. Um, and it took me time to navigate that. And I, and I saw a therapist. I went and saw mm. my GP. I said, something's going on. She says, well, you're not depressed. Um, I can guarantee you that you're good, but you go and speak to someone. And I, and I went and saw a psychotherapist who was, a, who essentially helped me unpack just the, you know, we use this word matrescence now, which God, I wish I had known that word back then, this kind of journey through motherhood. It's like adolescence, but it, it it helps describe the the physical, the social, the spiritual, the psychological, the sort of the the this, the this, the the change in self that you experience as you become a mother. It is a process of becoming, um, and she helped me unpack that. And by unpacking that, it kind of helped me dial down that feeling of shame around the anger, <laughs> um, and just gave me some tools and. And, and things to cope and I always remember and I think about this so often um she was the eastern european lady I'm not going to do her accent but she, she <laughs> sounded like a psychotherapist you know you kind of have have that kind of accent in your mind and then she said every crumb you wipe from the, and she used to talk with her hands she said every crumb you wipe from the bench and every little sock you pick up from the floor and roll up she said just keep in mind that you are building men you are building good boys who are going to grow into good men and I was so busy going oh I have to pick up another stuff I have to wipe up another crumb I was so caught in this quagmire of self-flagellation that I couldn't stand back and see but she could she could see she had perspective she could see and she'd just say these things to me and I've always remembered her saying that and I can hear her voice in my head and thinking oh wow you know like I still pick up the stupid socks <laughs> But I can see the bigger picture now. You can't see the big picture early on, but I can look back and I can think, God, you know, I did, I did kind of grow them up. Um, and that was so important to me was just having that, having that person to just explore that with. I, I don't think you can do that alone. You'd have to be very self-aware to be able to unpick that, that process if you're finding it difficult without, you know, another, another person like a therapist. Yeah, you need someone to help you recognize your blind spots and then, mm. you know, 
help you pull yourself out of the trenches so you can see a brighter, you know, broader view of what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just, yeah, yeah. And now, um... and then suddenly in the blink of an eye, here I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I've still got a long way to go. They're not done yet. They're still, you know, young middle teens. Yeah. (laughs) Still got a few years of high school left to navigate. But it's, it's, it's going well and it's, it's, it seems like a fun journey. Not wood, touch wood. (laughs) Yeah. But do you do you think uh, our society today um, overvalues or undervalues mothers, or somewhere in the middle? I mean, it's oh gosh, I personally have never felt undervalued, but like I say, I feel like I am often quite impervious. <laughs> I, I'm quite. Especially, and, and even then when I was struggling with this matrescence journey, I never felt undervalued. Um, I've never really cared what society in general thinks about me. I don't kind of, that's not my lens on the world. So it's kind of hard for me to say, and then having been immersed in motherhood and parenthood in a community where, you know, it, we've kind of had fun along the way raising our kids together in this in this great neighbourhood I live in. I've never felt undervalued or devalued within my community. Um, And what sort of out there reflects back on me, I don't really think too hard about. I don't take on board that. Um, Here in Australia, as, you know, know, when my kids were born, we were given this so-called baby bonus. You were given 5,000 Aussie dollars um, for every baby you you had. so they kind of paid you for having a, you know, that that I suppose didn't really, you know, financially impact my me and my husband that much. It's an enormous amount of money to many people. Um, so I guess in terms of a government policy country that I've brought my kids up in, Australia's always made me feel very valued as a mum. Mm. Um, but you know, like any, there's all there's always a few kind of things that that could be done or enhanced or done better. Or, and I suppose also because I have run my own business. So I haven't had to deal with corporates or gatekeepers or expectations. Um, and every country in the world is going to be very different. I'm very aware the US is very different um, in terms of how women may experience motherhood compared to how I've experienced motherhood. I personally never felt devalued, but I don't take my values from those signals. Mm. Yeah, that last part's very important. I'm probably not the best person to ask that question to. Why not? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, it's it's you know because for me it's a it's it's personal and I haven't felt devalued or I overvalued. Um, and also, you know, I decided a long time ago that also because I was running business from home, my husband he's more hybrid now, as you know, most of the world is that I was not going to raise boys where mum was not valued as a equal member of the family like I didn't be that want to be the cleaner driver even though I largely am my husband does it quite a lot especially as the boys have got older he's I'm kind of been pushed aside he sometimes doesn't think I do a good enough job um in a joking way it's very it's very lovely but um you know I decided a long time ago that I was not gonna I did three nights a week of dinner and he did three nights a week organizing um 
you know, that showed my boys that he valued me as much as I valued him. Mm. Um, we value each other as parents and as family members. And so I've, you know, like I've got agency over that and yeah. those decisions. Um, and so that's perhaps where I've got, I've got the value signals from. Yeah. Yeah. And intrinsic value, feeling like you're, you're worthy and you're enough based on the people you're around, how you feel about yourself. And yeah, then, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. you also happen to be a mother too, which is another gift on top of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I gained so much value, like outside of motherhood with my, you know, my career and my interests. Um, you know, I can kind of fill myself up with all of that as well. Yeah. Uh, the last a little thing that I want to touch on um, that I found very interesting um, looking at all of your stuff was that you talked about fathers have a, a decrease in testosterone if they're more, uh, if they care more for the child. Can you just touch on that? Yeah, quickly? yeah, yeah. That's, that, I love that result. Some men like get really freaked out by this. I set off a bit of a um, <laughs> furore here in the Australian media. We've got like quite a shock jock radio host here in Australia. I spoke to him about this and then he had talk back radio, talking about a men being, um, you know, a mat, what's the word? Emasculated. Emasculated by parenthood. And then it kind of moved over onto TV a couple of days later. So they got a male doctor in to talk about all of this, talk about my book. Um, <laughs> be funny. And see, see, I could feel devalued then. I don't. I just roll my eyes and go, oh, God, the men, you know, they're so predictable. Many, maybe many female authors might feel devalued that their book, a topic in their book was turned into a talkback radio conversation with men calling in the male DJ and then the male radio TV hosts then got the male doctor in. I don't, that doesn't make me feel devalued. That just makes me roll my eyes at the predictability of some men in the media. I, I, it's funny, like people said, how did you feel about that? And I said, oh, just ridiculous. I don't know where I get this. I think I just had a great, great parents who just instilled some <laughs> kind of, I don't know, resilience in me or something. So the story is, I've kind of told the side story. The story is, and this has come out of a number of different studies. In fact, interestingly, a very large longitudinal study of men's health in the Philippines um, we don't often see, um, you know, res research emerging. And I think it's really great when we see, you know, different, you know, um, re research coming from countries we don't necessarily expect. So it's looking at the levels of testosterone in men at different points in their life and found that testosterone levels drop quite dramatically and men, as they engage in caregiving, when they, a new baby kind of comes into the family or whether they're involved with caregiving and that relationship is very much dose dependent so the more engaged they are with the caregiving the more their testosterone drops hmm. and some men find that very confronting because I guess the narrative is you don't want your tea down you want high tea because that's kind of where your health and masculinity comes from um, and and this was interesting because I suppose the story always was that if you're engaged in caregiving you're oxytocin levels will be really, really high. We don't really see oxytocin levels change that much. It's more the ratio between the oxytocin and the testosterone, which appears to change. And so when you've kind of got high oxytocin and high testosterone levels, you're kind of more in, let's just say, a dating, mating type 
you know, behavior sort of sort of place. And it's and and it's hard to and it's probably the behavior reinforcing the hormones. There'll be a positive feedback loop there. But when you're caregiving, your testosterone levels go down, your estrogen stays high, so you're much more in a kind of a nurturing parenting mm. kind of, of, of place. And those men who are less engaged with fathering, their testosterone levels kind of tend to stay high. Mm. And then we, and then this is perhaps what's slightly uncomfortable is that some studies have looked at those men who remain the high T father um, their relationships with their partners are perhaps slightly rockier, for want of better language, and the women will often report, you know, that they feel kind of they're finding parenting a bit more difficult. Um, I'm being quite euphemistic here, and this is not every man and every family. This is just kind of the the, pat- the, the, the broad pattern. And so I think if I kind of think about, well, what's the kind of evolutionary ad- adaption going on here or, you know, what's Mother Nature like kind of trying to, to do here? I suppose the intention is humans are allo parents. We're meant to kind of not be parenting. Mum isn't meant to be parenting alone. So if you've got a father who's engaged in parenting and he's got low testosterone, he's probably less likely to want to go out and mate and date somewhere else who's much more kind of likely to stay you know kind of in the nest and help raise those kids and that's kind of a nice thing that perhaps the downside for the individual there not looking at that family unit but the individual male there is there are correlations between drops in testosterone and and mood disorders and depression in some men just in the same way that in some women when there's fluctuations in hormones that can make them more vulnerable to depression. But there's not every woman all of the time and it's not every man all of the time either. Just in some men, they may be more susceptible when their testosterone drops. But then if you look at the overall family unit, that family unit is a healthier, happier family unit with the low T. So that's, that's kind of the pattern. Um, and it was that story that um, I suppose upset some of the talkback, <laughs> the talkback callers. You know, yeah. you can imagine how that kicked off. I mean, it makes sense to me. Like I, I and I, mm. I think we we should be nurturing and caring and compassionate fathers, and we can get our testosterone out by still going to the gym. So our mood is still stable and moving our body, yeah. but we're present. We're present fathers because yeah, yeah, that's yeah. our duty. If we're going to have a yeah. baby and we're going to make a woman pregnant, right? Our duty is to be present, caring fathers. And if low T is what mother nature needs for us, then that's what we do. So that's yeah, yeah, yeah. like, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, uh, don't argue with it. It's, it's biology. <laughs> it's the neuroscience. It's yeah. real. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, you know, the thing is, some fathers are present for conception only and never seen again, and some fathers can be the primary caregiver. So there's this enormous variation. I mean, if a mother's experienced the pregnancy, she's there. She not, may not necessarily be usually as the, the primary caregiver, but not always. Um, but men's experiences vary enormously. And I think, like, to kind of go back to the beginning of this conversation, you said, well, why should we care about hormones? Why are they important? Well, they're interesting and they're important but they're not the only thing that matters mm. and they're just part of like a, co- a context, a social situation. And sometimes it's really hard because there's always feedback loops between behaviors and biochemistry. And sometimes it's hard 
to separate them. You know, they're always kind of reinforcing or, or, or not each other. That's kind of how loops work in, in, in biology. Um, so if we only focus in on kind of these one data points and in terms of a biological input to a brain, we forget about all of the other stuff that's that's coming in. Yeah. Yeah, we sometimes forget that we can take responsibility and ownership over our lives and then yeah, absolutely and then respond to the things that happen to us instead of trying to be <clears throat> ultra reactive all the time mm, mm. yeah but thank you dr sarah i appreciate your time oh look it's been such a great conversation and you i appreciate your questions you've kind of pulled a lot out of me that i i wasn't expecting to share but it's you know i i hope that everyone listening has found it useful and helpful Absolutely. I sure did. Um, where should people go if uh, if they want to know more about you, learn more, see more? Yeah. So the best place is my website. That's kind of a portal into, you know, everything else, courses and the books and social media, et cetera. So it's, you would pronounce it in the US, Dr. Sarah McKay. So it's dot com. I pronounce Perfect. it McKay because it's the traditional Scottish way, but um, yeah drsarahmackay.com and you can go and ex follow whatever little digital path you want to go down from there. <laughs> well, thank you and uh, I appreciate it. No, oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for tuning into that episode with Dr. Sarah. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And what idea stood out to you the most? What idea resonated with you most deeply that you could potentially implement into your life today? And if you enjoyed that episode, please share it with a friend because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Good Pods. And if you feel so inclined, the absolute best way to support this podcast is through Patreon. Patreon directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit, You Are Loved. But most importantly, most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.